You're listening to Conversion Nations, the podcast that helps conversion optimizers overcome challenges they face with their experimentation programs. Brought to you by Effective Experiments, the workflow and project management software helping optimizers make experimentation a core part of their business. Scale up your testing program with a centralized solution and document all your research, ideas, experiments, and results in one place. Learn more and request your free trial by visiting EffectiveExperiments.com. And now, your host, Manuel DaCosta. Hello and welcome. You're watching episode three of the Conversion Nations podcast. I'm your host, Manuel DaCosta, the founder of Effective Experiments. And joining me on this podcast is not just one guest, but two guests. We've got Chad Sanderson from Subway.com, and we have Tim Stewart from TRS Digital as well. We finally got him. So stay tuned. We're talking a lot about AI, machine learning, and everything that the marketers from vendors have promised us. But have they delivered? Okay, so welcome, Chad. Good to have you on again. This is the third uh, podcast you're on. And uh, Tim, welcome for the first time. Tim, for viewers that don't know who you are, that aren't connected to the Slack groups or the Facebook groups that you're on, do you want to do uh, a quick introduction, uh, telling them about yourself and about your professional career? Yeah, um, I'm Tim Stewart. And basically, I've been doing marketing pretty much since I left university, marketing and sales since I left university some 20-something plus years ago, um, focusing on digital stuff since about 99. So, yeah, that's going on 20 years as well. Um, and I have spent the last 10 or so years uh, really working in the conversion optimization space. Uh, I currently run my own consultancy, which I kind of pitch more as business optimization because increasingly I find myself not doing kind of what CRO has become associated with just A-B tests. I'm more often I'm looking at business process and how they make money and websites are a huge part of that and the discipline is part of that. But I, I look at who's got problems. I look at what they've got available to fix those problems and then I work out a, a way to deliver a plan that fixes those problems. Um, so I'm just a general meddler. I go in, find what's broken and fix stuff and people pay me for that. Nice, as they should. Uh, now, um, so this... Um, podcast, as I said earlier, we want to talk about AI and machine learning. But even before I get into that, uh, I was looking at this uh, talk that Craig Sullivan gave. Uh, if, you, if you don't know who Craig Sullivan is, you should definitely follow him. His uh, Twitter handle is Optimize or Die. Uh, and he had this uh, talk which was titled, We Were Promised Rocket Ships. And I think that's really, really relevant to the industry, right? If we look at, uh, if we look at the conversion optimization industry, when when these A-B testing tools first became widely uh, available, like Optimizely, VWO, a lot of them were talking about how easy it was to set up tests. Chad, you and I talked about this. I think in the first podcast, we, we covered this. Um, and then recently, um, in the last podcast, we, we talked about how uh, AI and machine learning is also going the same route uh, of, of promising really quick wins, really easy setups. What I want to do in this uh, podcast is try and dig a bit more underneath all those promises, under the surface of all those promises, and try and understand whether there's any truth to it, and what's the fiction. Separate the two from each other. Chad, why don't you tell us a little bit more? Because your the, your official role is the personalization manager of uh, at Subway. What is uh, how easy is personalization? Uh, how we pitched personalization or how you continue to be pitched with our, by other vendors, if anything, and, and what's your experience been? Yeah, I think that personalization, well, the first thing, the first thing I think to start with is that you have to understand who is usually making the decisions about these types of systems. It's people who are coming from the old way of marketing, which is, you know, you have an opinion, you make a decision, and then magic happens, and hopefully you're right, but we really have no way of knowing because you didn't measure it. So right. now I'm moving right. to this very data-driven approach. And in the case of A-B testing, not just a data-driven approach, an extremely scientific approach where you have measurable outcomes based on your opinions. And AI and personalization and some of these tools are like the next step of that. It's still delivering the same sort of 
data-driven approach, also with a control experiment side, but it gets even more complex and it gets even more complicated. So the tools, the tools are very powerful. There's no question about that. But with anything else, the same, same way with A-B testing, is that you have to understand what the tools are actually for and what you're doing with them. A lot of marketers and a lot of the people making the decisions, what they really want, what they really expect, is that the tool serves as a smarter version of themselves. They can just make a decision. Sure. And then money happens. And that's, that's not how it is. And so personalization for us is a process, the same way A-B testing is a process. So if, if more people were looking at it that way, I think that we'd be in a better place, but sadly, uh, they don't. Gotcha. Tim, what's your take on the, on the whole uh, A-B test, uh, sorry, AI uh, and machine learning? I mean, the part of the fact that they're, they're kind of mentioned in the same breath, I think, indicates like the lack of understanding. Uh, it's, it's, they're related disciplines, but it, it's not necessarily kind of been the, uh, anything other than a buzzword at this stage, a bit like kind of virtual reality was sort of in the what, 80s, 90s in terms of uh, you know, lawnmower man type stuff. We have something closer to what was promised 25 years ago by that is now turning up Nowadays, I think that there's a big gap between kind of what the correct application or the, the appropriate application of uh, machine learning and AI uh, algorithm uh, stuff is nowadays is, is starting to get to the point where we can do that. I mean, there's, there's huge potential. Um, I think, I think you know, kind of Chad said that part of the problem is, is what we're being promised, the rocket ships being, being promised, aren't outside the realms of possibility. There's stuff we can't yet imagine, which we can probably do. Um, with the, with these tool sets by using computers to iteratively go through to have kind of uh, initial states fed to it from data sources and then have either kind of the, the machine kind of go through some supervised learning and then effectively run come up with pattern matching that we wouldn't necessarily spot ourselves and use multiple data sets and pattern match across multiple data sets that we wouldn't necessarily be able to cohort group ourselves or it would take a very skilled analyst to do that sort of stuff so i think it's to a degree it will deliver what is being promised it will democratize some of that insight that takes you know days of me crunching numbers and using experience and various of these kind of regression and cohort techniques to kind of pull some nuggets out that time burning effect uh, will will go down we'll have computers to do more of that there will be more stuff that's plug and play yeah but as it stands as it stands at the moment and i hate the word but in terms of making it a productized thing where you can just turn it on and it will remove all responsibility from you and it will just take care of the decision making uh, we're a million miles away and partly that's because the people using it don't have the right criteria to feed the machines. And part of it is because we, we haven't built machines that are able to adapt to those responses. They have yet to be fed decent criteria. And, you know, Chad's point, he's, he's in charge of personalization. He sees it as a process in terms of where they are on their maturity cycle. But where they're probably advanced to where they started. Yeah. They'll look back in five years' time and look back going, God, we were... Messing, messing around in the shallows there just like me looking at tests I did 10 years ago and I cringe I'm like oh god you know that that maturity uh, cycle is kind of classic but what we're pitched at the moment is kind of people's blue sky ideals of kind of everybody's already at that level and just yeah. turn it on and go and I think you're right to sort of kind of compare it to when we first started with A-B testing and it was kind of and I was I was part of this was kind of you just add one line of code yeah, that, that was that was kind of the same. Just one line of code. It's like yeah, and the other libraries of shit you need to load behind from that load of code. Sure. But again, with the people we're selling to, the people who are currently being sold to, aren't data scientists. No matter what job titles say, they aren't maths majors. You know, chat aside, you know, they, they are coming typically from the marketing and sales and commercial side. So to sell to those people, you have to sell the sort of motivations, and you have to classic CRO techniques match a solution that they recognize to the product you're selling and so for the purpose of, sa of sales and for the purpose of growing market share people are making well if you were to be if, uh, if you were to be honest shall we say overblown sales pitches but in some cases they're true uh, you know there are companies they have sold to they've done beta projects to who do have all the prerequisites whose ducks were all lined up and have been able to get the sort of results they're talking about in their examples. What they don't tell you is that was ideal conditions with above normal levels of support from the tool set vendors themselves because they need a good case study example. 
and all the kind of uh, prior setup to make themselves look as good as possible just the same as food adverts are staged and nobody's hair ever looks that good when they're walking in the street as they do on film it's it's we're not shown the full picture we are shown the um edited highlight reel because that suits the sales objective and to a large degree as an audience we fall for that stuff so they do it more often it's 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 proven time and again if you yeah. can get somebody hooked in effectively they're with you for the growth during that maturity cycle and you can charge the money for the first two three four years they're doing it and they're not using the potential of the system they're not making the roi you claimed but you don't care you're getting paid in year four let, five, let's six, talk, let, let's, let's talk about this uh then tim uh sorry to interrupt you no. let's talk about let's go rewind back you said that one line of code uh, mm-hmm. which they could deploy which was true you could still deploy a test and do the WYSIWYG editors but that led to a whole heap of problems that weren't advertised, weren't made, people weren't made aware of. Then we fast forward to now when you're talking about AI and machine learning, if it's in the same breath that they, they, they pitch that, and they say, yeah, you can turn the switch on and it will do X, Y, Z. It'll deliver results through whether that's evolutionary algorithms or whatever, right? It's going to do the job for you. What is the reality in this situation? What is the ideal company that can actually benefit from this? What do they need to do on their end, which isn't advertised, in order to get value out of tools like this? Because, yeah, we're not disputing the fact that these tools are powerful tools. We're not disputing the fact that these tools can do what they said uh, they can do. But again, it's those ideal conditions. And sure, they may go and pitch to other companies, but we want to try and figure out, you know, for listeners listening, are they at the right stage for something like this? Or should they wait and get their basics right? Yeah, Chad, I, take, take that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, think it's a, I, I think it's something that we, we probably say all the time when it comes to A-B testing, which is that if you're starting an A-B testing program, then you're always going to want to need someone. You're going to have to have somebody that knows – A-B testing very well, specifically, Uh, not just a marketer who's been, you know, saddled with the tool and not just uh, an analyst who maybe worked in a different discipline and is now suddenly doing something that he's he's never done before. It's like, of course, that person isn't going to be able to achieve the same results as a fleet of data scientists and statisticians and all these people that are very familiar with the tools and the processes. It's It's just not possible. And I, I think Tim's point was exactly correct about that a lot of the case studies that you see from large companies that have a lot of success with personalization are the same companies that are also investing massively in the infrastructure of personalization. They're not just bringing in a tool and saying, go at it. They're, they're, they're bringing in people. They're training people. Oftentimes, the people that they're bringing in at these programs are consultants at the tool they use. So it's people who are who massively understand every single facet of the tool itself and can and can completely exploit it. And then they also have access to all the other aspects of, of uh, a major gigantic business, all the creative uh, all the creative resources, all the development resources. Um, and and that enables them to do a lot more. And in some cases, you know, testing, success at testing is really about scale. When you look at the largest companies that have massive amounts of success with testing in general, they're the ones that can afford to operate at that huge scale. The more that you do, then the more success you're going to have and the more larger successes you're going to have. It's just a numbers game distribution. The more that you do, the more likely it is that something is going to happen that's, that's, um, that's, that's uh, incredible. We try to, at, at smaller, and Subway certainly not a smaller company, but consultants who are very skilled at the discipline try to offset that a little bit and say, okay, we, we have this skill and we're going to try to maximize the amount of wins that we can get from, from smaller resources. But big companies don't have to worry about that. Sure, like they, they, they do have, they are trying to maximize their wins, of course, but they are also trying to maximize scale. And so sometimes when you see those personalization efforts, like, you know, personalizing X, Y, Z resulted in a 45% lift. Exactly, exactly as Tim said, you're only looking at the things that won. What you don't see is it took 5,000 losses to get to that point. 
And with a smaller company, can you afford to have 5,000 losses before you have a major win? Google can. They can absolutely afford to do that. Um, so I think thinking about, I, 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 think, I think the first step that medium and smaller businesses really need to think about is what would it take to effectively run a program, not just have a program. And that's going to take a lot of research, and it's not something that's going to, it's not going to come overnight, and it's not something where there's a, there's a, a program for it. You, I think the best way to do it is to bring in a consultant or um, to, to at, least, at least talk to somebody to have some sort of outside knowledge that's telling you what to do. The, an, another major issue, and this will be my last point before I'll give it, give it back to Tim, but another big issue is that oftentimes the only contact these businesses have is with the vendor. Right? They don't talk to anybody else. The vendor approaches them and say, here's this amazing tool that you can use to supercharge your whatever it is, supercharge your, your ROI or something. And they go, okay, well, that's great. Maybe they do a little bit of Googling, uh, who do I need to hire for this type of role? They bring in one person, and then that's it. That's as far as they get, when really it's a lot deeper than that. It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and you need, to, you need to operate beyond just the person who's, who's the salesman who's trying to get their foot in the door so you can spend money. So I want to summarize uh, what you just said, uh, Chad. The first thing is it's not just about the tool, it's the mindset of the people or the resources that they need within uh, the company to achieve success with the tool. You know, most um, companies when they pitch, I feel like, as you rightly said, is that the tool will, will be the silver bullet. It will do all the wonder, uh, wonderful ROI that they promised, but actually there's a lot of groundwork that they need to do. And the second point that you mentioned was the fact that they sh a company should also be talking to other people, uh, not just the vendor or the salesperson at the vendor, um, because ultimately they need to understand the, the, the real uh, value of the tool. Is that uh, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's correct. And it's not just the real value. And I think, I think you, you said something very important just there, where it's, people have it backwards. They think that the value is in the tool, and it's, it's not in the tool. It's in the process. It's in, you know, the, in these recent sort of A-B testing is dead articles that have been coming <laughs> up that, that all of us love, all of us love so much. Which we agree wholeheartedly with, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to give up and grow cauliflowers. A-B testing's dead. <laughs> I'm done. I've, yeah. I'm just going to retire, retire early. Uh, but, but one of the things that they all say is that, you know, it's really hard, that there's a lot of math involved that it's just, it takes a long time. It's, it's not as easy as a lot of people think it is. And, and they're absolutely 100% correct. But what they don't seem to grasp is that A-B testing is not specific to marketing. Yeah. It's not something yeah. that, we are that we have some exclusive handle on. And it's not called A-B testing, it's null hypothesis testing. A-B testing is just a more digestible term. Null hypothesis is like, what is, what is that? But that type of testing is used in clinical research, it's used in engineering, it's used to develop artificial intelligence systems, it's used everywhere because in, as far as we've come in human history, there has not been a better method of error reduction that we've found than null hypothesis testing. So saying that it's dead is one of the most, it's, it's one of the most ridiculous things ever because you're saying that the best process we have of understanding how likely we could be wrong is is pointless. So and it's the same with personalization. All, all of these things are the same. It's not the tools. It's the underlying methodology of figuring out how to best tackle a problem that's valid. Yeah, so that, that, that's kind of a bit, I, I mean, obviously Chad kind of nailed a couple of the main points there because Manuel's question was, what sort of company, what things do you need in the company to make a success of personalization? And you've kind of, same as we just said for A-B testing, you need a process, it's not the tool. I think uh, and we don't want to do A-B testing because the maths is hard. The maths of machine learning is way harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. We're, not, we're not talking about you know, a forced binomial situation where we basically artificially framed it and said this is what's going to do and this is the way the maths works, therefore we can only use it on this one. It is basically looking at kind of, you know, we work on the assumption of a normal, a normal distribution. We work on the assumption of uh, independent actions. Whereas machine learning and, and the, the AI part of that will then look at changing the pattern from the back of that is things that, particularly in web interactions, um, 
they're not necessarily independent actions. So if you're looking at a user flow through a journey or repeated visits through a journey, then you may find that you've got a cumulative effect. And then you start to get into ABC sequencing in terms of which are the things that should happen in which order to get the greatest outcomes. And that is not an independent variable because it depends on the prior choices as to which, it, which of the next set they should be get given. So the maths on that is like, well, harder than I can handle. I can just about handle kind of p-values and z-scores, but you get into that and I do need to like plug it straight into the Azure database and press the button and go, let's see what comes out. But I'm not basing any major decisions on that. So the point about kind of what does a company need, I think we talked about maturity and it's kind of weird or it's kind of not weird, it's completely expected to be honest, it's a shame, not weird, that the companies who are jumping onto machine learning and AI as a way to automate personalization are the ones who skipped past doing A-B testing because it's hard. It's kind of the, the prerequisite for getting the most out of null hypothesis testing to get the most out of, of a, a testing program is being of maturity, a scale where you can run a program suitable to your company size. And when you get to the point when your ability to scale the team, where your ability to run tests and the way you prioritize tests and you choose value is starting to become limited by the human factor in that, where you have got an opportunity cost because there are 10x the number of tests you did run versus what you could have run, where you've got tests that if you were to run them with a set of humans as a full null hypothesis test with the whole lot through to completion um, would be cost prohibitive. There would not be enough value in those. Then the ability to use a way to use the scale that you've got in terms of traffic, but divide that up into giving it as data to a machine that can look to spot opportunities and to look to do sets of mini tests and evolving tests to basically use up that spare capacity. And obviously Tom Wessling from um, uh, Online Dialogue, there, he's got his maturity curve and he said, like, don't even start testing until you've got 1,000 a month. Yes. And he, like 10,000 a month you can go and he's got his stepped explanation. And right at the top of that, he says, when you've got to the point where your, your cadence of testing is limited by how fast you can hire and how, many, how much traffic you can go through, then the, the, the gap between what you can currently test that versus what's left in your audience that could be tested, that's the ideal point to start plugging in your computers to do that. Yeah. So what sort, of, what sort of company needs to be using this or what would be a good signifier? They need to have scale, both of people and of traffic. They need to have an established process for running a good cadence of tests. And obviously some people talk about tens of thousands, like being in Microsoft presented tens of thousands a year. But small, medium companies or small, medium testing setups within large enough sites could be running sort of 200, 300 if they've got their, their stuff lined up. But if you look at what some of these tools will limit you to, the AB ability, uh, AB tools will limit you to, you can maybe run two, three, four tests concurrently if you've got the traffic for it. And then the tool taps out. So if you've never run more than that, then, and that's what your traffic can handle. Turning around and saying, I'm going to subdivide this and provide all the data segments and plug in all the stuff from the CRM and say, turn it all off and I'm just going to let the machines decide. Effectively, you've divorced yourself from responsibility. And the, the companies that do well with it are the companies that have done well with A-B testing. And before that, they did well with user testing and usability. They, they are the companies who took this stuff seriously. They took their database, their CRM, the direct mail seriously before the online came along. They tend to be the ones who, when given a new tool that fits with how we do stuff and allows them to fill up that spare capacity to, to reduce their opportunity cost of tests we could have run that we didn't, they magnify it. It's a magnifier. It will catalyze the effect they already got. The shame of it is the sales pitch is mostly aimed at people who went, A-B testing is a bit hard, let the computers do it. Yeah, And the people who buy that are buying magic beans because every other prerequisite they need in terms of scale, statistical ability, teams who can do so, understanding of what, how to interpret the results, understanding of how to take action from those results, it's not there because they would have built that up in the process of building a highly skilled A-B team. And the fact they never did. I'm not saying you couldn't. You could come in cold, never done any testing. You take it over the period of realistic timelines, two, three years to build up a team that does a mixture of AB, a mixture of um, personalization tools and uses them appropriately and builds your ability. You could go from nothing to a full optimization team using all the toys in the toolbox within two years. But the amount of money you'd have to spend in that two years would not provide ROI because you'd have to go from naught to 60 at a great cost with no way to know what that ROI would be. You're going in blind. Whereas a company that spent the last 10 years A-B testing can quantify the ROI and understands what they've done. 
if you then go, here's a tool cost, here's a people cost, here's a traffic cost, they've got at least some prerequisite data to understand how much more they need to invest, when they realistically could see a return from that, and what that retain, return would be. And in those cases, like I said, it would fill the gap between what we're already doing, and it may free up time. Some of those little itty bitty AB visual tests, let the machine do it. But you need to feed the machine some precursor knowledge. You need to go in and say, right, here's some guided learning. We'll see how well you do against that. Here's some patterns that we've previously established. Let's test what you do against those. And then you've got the kind of the unguided learning. We go, here's the full data set, and then see what you can come up with that we didn't. But you've got to have all those prior pieces to be able to feed the machine. Otherwise, it is just turn it on and let it watch. And the learning period will be so long as to be useless. And the value you get out of it will be not human interpretable because it will just go, there's lots of things that might correlate. And you can't take action off them. And if yeah. you do all of this and we don't take action, then it's worthless. It's just, you know, it, it's doing numbers for numbers sake. If you're taking action on it, if you're <clears throat> realizing better results from it, then it has a value. But whether that's just being insight and heuristic analysis and gut feel and being good at it, A-B testing or a mix of the both, or letting the machines take over, at some point you need to change the way you do business, change the way you present your website, change the way you get audience. Because if you don't change what you're doing based on the results you get, you're going to get the same results. My concern with, uh, with this as well is shirking off the responsibility from humans, machines, and getting those results how do you really know whether those results are valid or are we just looking at a black box, right? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, that's, I, I think that's one of the main issues right now, like in the, in the personalization community and to some degree in the machine. So one thing, just to sort of quickly go over, and Tim has already sort of nailed upon this point earlier, but just to make it a little bit, a little bit more clear for anyone who's listening that doesn't really get what machine learning is, all machine learning is doing is, depending on the model that it's using, is it's looking at a set of data and it's asking the question, what correlations can we find so that we try to understand a particular person better? So if, this, if, all, if there are all these correlations, like uh, if someone who visits the site uh, during lunchtime, let's say for Subway, who visits the site during lunchtime on a desktop computer, is a lot more likely to purchase than someone who visits at nighttime, then maybe we'd show that person A versus B. It's just looking at data and it's drawing regression lines and things like that. Um, sometimes it, it gets deeper. Um, you have like classification systems and you have decision trees and all these different sort of unfolding like K-means and all this other stuff. But, but at its essence, it's really, it's really just correlation. And whenever you're creating a correlation, and this is a, a, a consistent problem, not just at uh, smaller businesses or people starting off with personalization, but very large businesses too, at Microsoft, at Google, all have these problems where you still have to train your machine to know what to look for. And if you train it incorrect, incorrectly, or if you train it on data that isn't representative of your total population, then you could get some results that are that are possibly even worse than if you had done nothing at all. Um, a good example, and there's a, and there's a few examples of this, are, uh, I think Google had a classification system where it was uh, image recognition, where the data was trained on a particular image set, and from that, it was the, the point was to figure out whether or not there was a, uh, how, how to uh, properly identify a particular image. And based on the image set that it got, it identified um, anything involving a kitchen as a woman, even if there wasn't even a woman in, in the image at all. And anything that was involving baseball as a man, even if there was no man in the image. And that's just based on, that's just based on the data set that it got. It said, I see, I see a picture of a baseball. What is the most likely thing that this could possibly be based on all the other data I've seen before? There's a lot of men, therefore it's a man. That's how a machine makes decisions. And when we're talking about people, Oftentimes, very good systems can make good decisions, but sometimes they, they don't make very good decisions at all. It's always based on a, a, a degree of logic that humans create. And so what you were saying about a, a black box, in many cases, that's true. There's some systems that are, are very um, transparent. Um, Matt Gershoff's Conductrix is one example, but many of the personalization systems and the AI systems that are out right now, you have no idea what the logic is. You don't know 
what sort of decisions that that machine is making based on the criteria that it sees. So it could be generating something that's worse off for you. Maybe not now, but potentially in the long run. Another really interesting example is one um, out of the UK. I don't remember exactly what the what the company was, uh, but it was a it was like a a credit loan company, I believe. And what was happening was it was using this this uh, personalization system or artificial intelligence. I don't know exactly what it was. We didn't really get the details on what system was doing this, but depending on a lot of the factors that you typed into a form in order to get a loan, it would change, or maybe it wasn't a loan, maybe it was like a, a real, something would do real estate or something like that. It would change the amount of money that you would receive. And some of those variables, a machine just looks at all variables. It looks at all the, all the variables that it can possibly analyze. It looks at, it looks at all of them. And so it was taking in things like your name or your gender or your location it was saying based on this name that we've seen affiliated with, you know, really low scores, then you're going to have to pay more. And so that obviously that causes massive outrage. And so the question is, even if we if even if we weren't talking about outrage, even if we weren't talking about, you know, issues with media and backlash in that way, is that a better system? Is it a better system to give somebody this higher, uh, this higher price based on all these other factors? Does it lead to, to more ROI in the long run? And I think that's a question. So there's actually a guy, uh, Pavel Dmitriev, okay. Microsoft. he's a principal data scientist at Microsoft. And one of the things that he said recently is that he always A-B tests the algorithms that they use. Because, and that's not just with other algorithms, that's with nothing at all. Because there are, are plenty of situations where you create this amazing, fantastic algorithm, and for usability purposes or for whatever whatever purposes it may be, it performs worse than just a traditional website. And that's something a lot of people don't don't think of uh, in a lot of cases. And you can't think of if you're using a black box system. Obviously, Microsoft has their own system, so they can tinker and toy with it as much as they want. So, Chad, uh, how do case studies feature in all of this? Because case studies always uh, portray you know the tool in good light that they've done the job but ultimately if we you know scratch beneath the surface the tool really isn't the the uh, the, the successful component of that case study it's the people behind it the thought process behind it mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on case studies that you read uh, when i mean any martech vendors talk about their their platform or their tool or whatever it is out there yeah, I mean, you got to take case studies with a, with a grain of salt, uh, pretty much all of them. That's, uh, Tim mentioned this earlier, too, but there's an official term for it. I think it's called the graveyard of unspoken ideas or some, something like that. Um, other, other way that you can look at it is survivorship bias, where, of course, the things that you see in the end are the good ones because the bad ones are never going to make it into the case study. You know, no one's ever going to include a case study of all the times that they applied a program and the program made things worse or they spent a lot of money and they got nothing, which would be a, a, a massive ROI. No one's, of course, no, nobody's ever going to mention that. So you have to look at a case study understanding that you're only seeing a very, very, very small percentage of, uh, of, the, overall, of the overall effects. It's just like a lottery winner. Like if, if every lottery, um, when they were trying to get people like on commercials or things like that, showed pictures of all the people who won the lottery, well, yeah, yeah, of course. Those, <laughs> that's, yeah, so-and-so won $20 million because that's the guy who won the lottery. But you have, you know, tens of thousands of people who didn't win the lottery. You know, they're, when you look at it holistically, when you look at it at this aggregate point of view from 50,000 feet, what's more likely that you're going to be one of those people that mad that wins the lottery and has a point like zero 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 five percent chance or one of the other 50,000 people that gets nothing um, so I think that's kind of how you look how you need to look at case studies and so don't base your decision on that base it off of is this tool something that I am capable of using and and more really it's not even about the tool what you should really do first is have a process in place to, to execute the program and then after you have at least the strategy and the, the, the skeleton of what the program is going to be fundamentally from the ground up, then say, what is the tool that best fits our needs? Not try to build a program around the tool. Yeah, there's an awful lot, awful, awful lot of box ticking at the moment because it is the hot thing. 
Yeah, just because you know we should have it. It's hot right now, and it's like, okay, what are you going to do with it? We've got one. Yeah, I, I see I, this quite often. Talking about your point, Chad. Like uh, anytime someone asks for, I'm looking for a recommendation for a tool. Uh, in the comments, you get loads of people just recommending, you know, one tool after the other, but no one actually stops to say, "What's your criteria? What are you looking for? What problem are you looking to solve?" I, I do every time. Okay, okay, you're the exception <laughs> there. But uh, seriously, look at any any uh, thread on on yeah. Facebook or LinkedIn. It's just that, every, and it's like the vendor saying, "You should try us. You should do, uh, try us because we're amazing," and so on and so forth. But no one really stops to really qualify the person saying, "Hang on, do you re what do you need?" Why do you need that in the first place? And, and a, a key thing with this is, is uh, server-side testing, right? So that was publicized. Well, there are, there are tools like SiteSpec that have been doing it for years now. Uh, is, I don't know if Target does it as well, uh, but SiteSpec do it. And then I think Optimizely recently started doing it like a year, yeah. a year and a half ago. And Web Trends also, because it was hot, Web Trends also claim, oh, we've got a server-side tool. And yeah. It's kind of... Yeah, and the, I mean, obviously, I've done some work with SiteSpec, but the, the, the question kind of people come and go, what can you do different? It's like, well, have you got to the limit of what you need to test or you can test with your client-side tool? Like, because there's, if, if you use your client-side tool to the maximum of its abilities, then you probably get kind of 80% of what you need to do done. But if that remaining 20% is where the value lies, testing the algorithms, testing different recommendation engines, testing kind of against user bases, so you trying to increase lifetime value, pulling in data sources, adjusting who they are, trying to use some machine learning to say, okay, in this case, we'll, we'll put these guys into a group. Why not based on browser and this, but based on their, you know, they spent more than £100 in the last month group. Where's that coming from? Well, that comes from our server. How do we deal with that? that's where your server-side switches can come into play. And there are some speed advantages, some technical pieces, but for the most part, if you're good at coding JavaScript and you know what you're doing it for, you can fake up an awful lot of that stuff. The, the kind of the value comes with server-side from, it's a pain in the bum to get implemented to start with because you basically have to embed it into the way your system works. It sits between your CDN and your, your origin server. There's, there's a fair bit of configuration and failover and fail safes to make sure. And you have to have little hooks for them to communicate with each other. So, you know, the, the, the tool has to put a little flag on it saying, don't send them to server farm A, send them to server farm B. The devs on the other side need to know what that flag means and have a way to switch. But once you've done it, you can test that sort of stuff with every single test you do. And you could report on person's lifetime value as a, as a correlated metric because you've got a linking value to do so. So your report system can pull more stuff in. Whereas if you wanted to do something like that with a tag tool, you'd have to build that sort of complicated kind of multi-system interaction into your JavaScript, which becomes uh, prohibitive in, in the size of the sort of work you need to do or so complex it might as well be for the, for the people you've got available to it. So the same sort of thing comes up with personalization and indeed recommendation engines because we talk about personalization and machine learning, but a kind of the example that a lot of people kind of started off using is the, the, the Amazon, you know, because oh. you like this, the Amazon recommended product. Yeah. Cause what, so, so that's when, when AB testing was coming out, people go, oh yeah, we, we're going to do a, a recommendation engine. Oh, why is that? Because it's going to help with our merchandising. And all that was, was you know, even 10, 12 years ago, was a, a fairly simple We've shown them these 10 products. We've shown them these 10 products. First 10 products tend to get more secondary ads than the second 10 products. So we'll show more from this group. And it was a slow but simple kind of learning algorithm. Some of them faked it. There literally was just only the 10 products, but they randomized it. Some of them did have some way to measure and test against their systems. But that logic has been around for ages. What we're saying is take that away from people who bought this also bought that into people who saw this page and then this page would be better suited by this third page, as per Chad's example earlier on in terms of kind of what they should be showing somebody based on prior behavior. Server-side means you can integrate that in, but you can trigger that sort of stuff with a tag system. Um, I mentioned Conductrix earlier on, similar sort of thing. They're working kind of as a layer, an optimization layer separate to the site. But the experience in using, if you can't do that with a JavaScript tag, if you've never tried to run tests or planned tests and gone limits of the system, mean I can't run that because XYZ needs integrating. Then you haven't got a need to plug in a system that fills that gap. If you if you only ever do button swap tests, if you only ever change banners or do merchandising differences, if you only ever change the layout of your product detail page, you don't need server side. It became hot in the last couple of years, finally after a couple of vendors doing it forever, because 
some companies have reached maturity level where they are starting to want to test real business numbers, real business data sets, and maybe look at kind of slightly more complex, either uh, single page apps, Ajaxy type things, but now single page apps and kind of those, uh, the PWAs coming through, that those sort of things require um, a different testing mechanism. You can't stick a line of JavaScript on, or a line of JavaScript that do anything useful on an AMP page. You can't do uh, set-top boxes or all the various devices we're starting to get in our homes. These are all interfaces to deal with buying customers. Currently, none of these guys can A-B test a Google Home because there's no JavaScript to render. But if you're a server-side, you can swap out answer one, answer two. If you ask Google Home a question, theoretically, Google could A-B test and probably are A-B testing how which response bank it pulls from. The need to do that is what drove some of the more mature companies to start going, we've moved to server-side testing. In the last couple of years, we've seen that get hot. And so again, I think the, the good side, because we've been quite down on AI and machine learning, the good side is we are compared to 10 years ago when we only used it for recommendations. We are starting to see some use cases used properly for machine learning tools and things that can kind of develop uh, different approaches from that. We are starting to see customers of a certain maturity who are making good advantage of this on top of an existing optimization program. And this is why the mass market is suddenly going, me too. There's bandwagon jumping going on all over the place. And at this point of kind of early majority has got the hang of it, they're pushing the demand. We're now getting into that bigger lump. And the problem with your, your sales life cycle is once you've got your kind of early adopters are out of the way, they've learned their mistakes, they ain't sharing those mistakes. We just talked about the survivor bias. They then come into the point where they're held up as the examples of Amazon and eBay being used as examples for AB, AB testing. Nobody mentioning they're quite big and they were doing it for 10 years before you heard they were doing it. That's how they got big. So, well, causation correlation. If I can have an AB tool, I'll be as big as Amazon. It's like, yeah, there's like $10 billion and 10 years difference between you two. That's at least how much it would have cost you. And that, that's kind of the good side is we are starting to see this demand now, not because they're selling magic beans. There are genuine examples of people out there doing it, but they are companies that have got most of the ingredients we've discussed today that mean that they can make use of it. And they become those case studies. And if, I mean, talking about the survivor bias, one of the interesting uses, and Facebook do a lot of testing, um, and uh, Chad, you've mentioned this before, kind of relation to A-B testing, is kind of uh, testing, testing for failure, testing for removal of stuff. We always test add in these buttons. And uh, the, the, it was one of the Facebook engineers, I read an article probably about a month or so now, where he was talking about the, the classic example of kind of uh, the problem of planes going back in World War II and they kept losing too many bombers. So they looked at where the holes were on the bombers that came back and looked at reinforcing those places. And then they kind of flipped it on the head and said, well, why are we reinforcing the whole planes that have been shot in those places can obviously still fly. They make it back. It's the planes that, where do we not see planes coming back with that? So if we don't need to reinforce the wings because they can take a shot through the wing and still fly home, albeit slowly. But the ones which we don't have any sample for are people which have taken bullets to the, the the cockpit and the body in fact we've got none of them that made it back that have damaged the cockpit and the body let's reinforce the cockpit and the body because that's obviously correlates to fatal crashes rather than than survivor so actually testing and facebook do testing to find things that they don't see examples of the stuff that a machine unless told to look at the inverse will not spot because a failure can indicate somewhere where you need to fix a problem way better than trying to double down on where you know a success already is. And that understanding is very much part of what learning from testing allows you to feed into a machine to say, thank you for spotting this opportunity, but the hole you've suggested, we would like to invest the whole, investigate the hole. We don't have any signals for did something positive in this area. The question we'd like to answer is why are there no positive signals in this area? We can say these ones can increase, but why is this area empty? And that's where we can point out a hole, but it can't suggest it because it's got no data points to work from. I think we almost need like a, a Maslow's theory of um, hierarchy for optimization, right? If you're, if you're starting out with A-B testing, what you do you need to have in place before that? Then you move on to A-B testing and you move on to personalization or server-side testing because mm -hmm. unless you've, you've covered that base before that, that foundation before that, 
you should. I, yeah, I, mean, I think Brian Eisenberg's got that. Didn't, didn't Eisenberg do that? Oh, has he? Okay, so then there's already so, something. So, in place. So, if not, if there isn't one including the AI side of things, but I think it does start out with kind of functional, like basic, get the UX, like literally yeah. sort your basics first, which is what kind of Craig says a lot. Um, Arnut says it a lot as well. Um, you know, most of the time I go in when I'm fixing pe- people's businesses because that's what I tend to do. I, I'm not running a test. Because how many tests do you run this month? None. Yeah. Why? I was fixing the broken stuff. Literally, the, the stuff that isn't working, the stuff that allows me to measure what's working, that's where I spent my first three months on this engagement. Why? Because yeah. with that broken, none of the other stuff is just going to fall down. Your foundations aren't right. Yeah. And so there is, although certainly the, the Eisenbergs about eight years ago, I think it was, did the kind of the, the AB pyramid for testing. I think we nearly need to kind of put that uh, similar setup in place or that, that maturity piece in place for, for personalization and, and AI because yes, you can get good results. Yes, you need to do it but like as chad was saying kind of the foundational part of that is build a process that understands what optimization is then build a team that helps you could do that more fast and more quickly then you're in a position where you are can uh, correctly do vendor selection and i'm not saying you can't get vendors in and try their things but that's basically what you do and an awful lot of kind of the, when you talk to the guys who do build the ai tools they talk about the learning period and it's a bullet point on the sales deck oh yes we'll set it up and it'll do a learning period but the guys who build this stuff, that's what they're doing. They're A-B testing their own algorithms. They are Before they let the machine go off and A-B test itself, they are going, we, we gave it this premise. Here's the expected outcome. Like We know from previous experience what it should look like. Let's see how long it takes to get to that point. See if it does get to that point at all. Let's see if it's acceptable where it comes to. Because if it comes back with its machine learning and it learns something wholly different, we either question whether it's algorithms correct and correct so your model is better adapted to your situation, feed it more parameters, or we look back at our testing and go, has it genuinely found something we missed or something we spent the last 18 months testing and have made false assumptions on? But that's more questions. You never just accept, and this is kind of the argument against black box, if the machine says yes, you, the, the next question anybody's been doing any testing is why? And if you can't answer why, if you didn't set the premise to be able to answer a question of why, you've got to believe what the box is. And if yeah. the only way you'll score it is if you see money in the bank, but you're not testing to see if that money in the bank would have been even more if you'd not touched anything, it's, you're basically believing the sales spiel. And the sales guys, and let's not lump them all in there, I came from the sales background, but the, the sales guys for, who profit from the lack of knowledge in the market will be very delighted to keep telling you, shiny, shiny, buy the new thing. The CEO will be quite happy to hear that the thing he's paid, she's paid £200,000 for this year, plus an extra 100000 for for data scientists, because we've got data scientists now. If you can say to them, yeah, you've got ROI, and they'll believe it, they'll be happy. Whether it's true or not is actually what the data scientists and the optimization people need to care about. Because just keeping the, the boss man quiet is not the end goal. The end goal is improving the company. And if you're not think, doing, if you're not doing that, that's that's where pretty case studies and faking it fall apart. Is eventually you run out of that money. That the the, 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 the pot stops being filled up, and you don't have the goose that got laid the golden egg. You can't budget for that anymore. And I think one of the I think one of the, the, the biggest the biggest issues is that I, like you know we're talking about all these things and what I what I think is the people who are listening to this uh, listening to this um, podcast are probably not the people who most need to hear the message. The people that really need to hear the message are the people are the stakeholders who, especially in marketing, who are making these decisions and that's why one of the things that I, I like to do anytime I go into a, a new uh, company um, that's starting A-B testing or starting CRO in any way is I try to drive home the message that what we are doing is a scientific process and the point is better decision making and not just not just better not just incrementally better decision making not like slightly better decision making like it is fundamentally better for decision making than any method that any marketer has used up until this point. It's just, it's just a fact, you know, it may not always come to the right conclusion, but as far as the decision making process, it's, it's much, much better. And it kind of sort of, you know, one of of the things that I was mentioning at the very beginning of this was that the marketers and the directors who are making these decisions 
are making the decisions based on their own experience making decisions. And I've seen this many times is people who come in and they say, well, you know, we don't need to test. We just need to implement. Well, why do they say that? Because their entire life has been spent implementing. That's what they've done for the last 20, 30, 40 years is they say, this is what I want. This is, I, I am paid to give you my opinion. My opinion, I believe is right. That's how I'm, that's how I make my money. Um, and we are proposing an inherently different system. And I think that if, if more stakeholders understood the value of the system, then a lot of these things would become common sense to them. Of course, you, do, you don't just invest in a tool right off the bat. Of course, you don't, you don't start a personalization program without having a, a, a team built up. Of course, you don't do that. Because now you're thinking in terms of, 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 uh, of, of validating your results and not just doing things and measuring them afterwards. So what I, what I hope is for the people who are listening to this that are going back to their bosses and you know, need to answer questions about personalization or machine learning, the first thing that you should try to get across is make decisions based, not just based on data, but on some scientific process and not just in digital, but in how, anytime you're making a decision, if, you, if you're just saying something and that something has an outcome and you don't know whether it's going to work or not, you need to re-examine your decision-making process and ask yourself how I can structure it so that there's some evidence. That sounds good. I think we have now run out of time. It's been quite, a, uh, quite an enjoyable podcast having both of you on. Uh, we shall continue discussions next week on our next podcast. Uh, but pleasure having you on again, Chad. And Tim, thanks for joining us for the first time. Hope you can make it uh, next time if you have the time to, uh, to join us on the podcast. Yeah, do the best. You've been listening to the Conversion Nations podcast brought to you by Effective Experiments. Uh, this is Manuel da Costa signing off. See you soon. You've been listening to Conversion Nations. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified when we release new updates. Conversion Nations is brought to you by Effective Experiments. Want to make experimentation a core part of your business? Request your demo and let us show you how we can help you grow your testing program.